How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. That was great. You you know, you get more and more breath control every week. You know, I mean, and the sustaining of it. And, you know, of course we say, ladies and gentlemen, but we mean everyone. You know, we're not specific to ladies and gentlemen, you, they, them, whoever can listen because we always us. have some remar- us, uh, remarkable, remarkable guests. Jeez. Mark, how have you been over the last week? Been well, Dr. Joe. How about yourself? Uh, I have been really doing very well, actually. Lots of great things continue to happen. Riverside Community Care is building our community behavioral health plans, and I hope people will recognize what that means throughout the state of Massachusetts. It's a new and wonderful way of approaching community behavioral health, which is long overdue. And I know that uh, I'm pretty sure that McLean and is, is going to be part of all of this as well. So we are really... You're cutting edge, right? I mean, you really are out in front of the future of healthcare down there at Riverside, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. We're, we're you know, it's community care. Right. I, you know, it's just like the idea, if, if you break your leg, you go to an emergency room, you get an x-ray, they figure out where the break is, and then they send you home with a broken leg and a cast. This is what community care is. We'll figure out where things are going on, but the healing is going to happen back at home in the community. Right. And it's really with that in mind that, that we have two incredible guests tonight talking about that healing component, what's going on in the family. Mark, can you please introduce our guest for tonight? Yes, I can, Dr. Joe. Our first guest, Thomas F. Harrison, is a professional writer and the former editor of a leading national periodical for attorneys. He has extensive personal experience caring for family members with dementia. Based in Massachusetts, he is also the co-author of The Complete Family Guide to Addiction. We also have Dr. Brent Forrester, Dr. Joe. Dr. Brent Forrester is chief of the geriatric psychiatry department at McLean Hospital in Belmont, Massachusetts. He's also an associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. He is also senior medical director for Population Health Management at Mass General Brigham, where he leads a system-wide dementia care program. Dr. Forrester's award-winning research focuses on developing and testing effective treatments for dementia and mood disorders in older adults. Welcome, Dr. Forrester and Attorney Harrison. Welcome to both of you. Thank you so much for being here tonight, talking about such an important, important topic. Just, you know, I also have personal experience with this. My wife's parents, both of them, uh, developed Alzheimer's, and we were, you know, privileged and honored to be taking care of them for some time. But boy, it was so different back then in the late 1990s, early 2000s. So, you know, it's incredible. Let me, let me just ask a couple of things. 
Um, there are so many components to talk with in this about in this book. And folks, I really recommend you immediately go and get a copy if you need it. This is what it looks like. Uh, Dr. Farster, how do we actually get access to this book? Well, first of all, Dr. Joe and, and Mark, thanks for having us on this evening. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I think you can find this book on Amazon uh, by putting in the Complete Family Guide to Dementia. You can also search with the names Forrester and Harrison for that. Um, and Guilford Press, the pub publisher, also has a website where you can purchase the book as well. It comes in both paperback and hard copy. Yeah, it, it's it's so important. And it's happening in so many places. It, it, towards the middle of the book, though, I actually want to jump to the middle because there was an image that you guys spoke about regarding reading a novel. Tom Harrison, could you could you pick up with that? What that image is? Sure. Um, one of the things I, that we were trying to do is to convey what, what the experience is like of having um, dementia. And, and one of our suggestions was if you have a novel that you own that you haven't read, open it up to a page in the middle, random page in the middle, and read just that page. Um, and think about that experience. You will might have a sense of how the characters relate to each other. You might have a sense of the mood. Is this funny? Is this suspenseful? Is this dramatic? But you won't really understand what's going on. Um, you won't know why what's happening is important or relevant. You won't know um, if something is funny because of something that happened previously. You won't know, um, you know what, what, the, what the significance of anything that's happening is. And the reason you don't know is that you don't have, you haven't read the, the first part of the book. You don't have any context to put things into. But another way to say that you don't have any context is to say that you don't have a memory. Hmm. You don't. You're not able to remember what's happened um, up to this point in the book. And that's what it's like for someone with dementia. It's that they they can tell what's going on. They can sort of sense the characters. They can sort of maybe get a sense of the mood of the interactions around them, but they can't understand the significance of it. They can't, they can't put it in context because they can't access their memory. And, and I think if you, if you think about that, it, it, it gives you some sense of what the experience of dementia is like. And, and, and from that, we, we, we then draw out, you know, what, you know, how you might interact with a person with dementia more effectively by, you know, among other things, providing context to, to everything that's happening around them. I, I really wanted to start there because I, I think it does give people an insight into what this must be like to not have that memory, that context. So with that in mind, what, what actually is dementia? Dr. Forrester, what, what is dementia? Sure. So, um, Dementia, which often gets confused or mixed in with Alzheimer's disease, which happens to be one form of dementia, but the syndrome we call dementia is characterized by a change in some aspect of cognitive functioning. As Tom mentioned, it's often memory, it's our inability to learn new information or remember things that happened in our past. But it could be other aspects of cognition too, like, like judgment or planning or organization or, or decision-making. Um, but when you tie in both the cognitive change, the memory loss, along with someone's ability to function in their daily life, 
like paying the bills or driving the car uh, or dressing themselves correctly or, or, or remembering how to actually prepare a meal. Um, when, you, when you combine a memory loss with a functional deficit, that equals the syndrome of dementia. But what it doesn't tell us is what's causing that syndrome of dementia. There are probably 60, 80 causes of dementia, the most common of which is the Alzheimer's type of dementia, which is why they're often used interchangeably and why often the public gets confused and people with the you know, family members get confused. That's probably the single most common question I get when speaking with audiences and with the public around this topic is, what is the difference between Alzheimer's disease and dementia? And the answer is Alzheimer's disease is the most common form of dementia. Like, for example, a Chevrolet is a type of automobile. Um, so when we think about the causes of dementia, um, the reason why Alzheimer's gets a lot of the headlines in the press is not just, it's, it's because it's the most common for sure. Um, but it's also growing dramatically because the number one risk for getting this illness is how long we live. And right now in the United States, we're seeing a dramatic increase in the proportion of people over the age of 65 in the United States because of the baby boomers. The first baby boomer turned 65 in the year 2011. And so we currently have about 6.2 million Americans with Alzheimer's dementia or some other form of dementia in this country expected to rise to nearly 14 million by the year 2050. And Alzheimer was a neuropathologist in, in, uh, in Germany back in the early 1900s. And he had a patient who was in her 50s at the time. And she was in the hospital with memory loss and confusion for sure. But the main symptom that caused the most distress was that she was paranoid and believed that um, her husband was having an affair and she was severely agitated. And when she died in her 50s, he looked at her brain under the microscope and he saw the two hallmarks of this illness in the brain. And one of these are the amyloid plaques and the other are the neurofibrillary tangles. And these are abnormal protein deposits in the brain that accumulate in people with dementia of the Alzheimer's type, bearing his name. And what we still don't know to this day is what role those abnormal proteins play in the symptoms we call dementia, including memory loss. Is it a byproduct of something else? Is it the root cause of the disease? Or is it related perhaps to another process that we don't fully understand? We know that those are there. We know that they occur as the illness progresses and they build up over time. Um, and we're learning more and more about the role they play in the, in the cause of these symptoms. This can go on and be occurring before anyone really knows it. And you said, how long do we think this is beginning? Yeah, with studies that have been going on now over the last decade, really the last couple of decades, um, following people longitudinally with all sorts of testing, um, we now believe that some of these hallmarks, you know, signs of Alzheimer's disease, these plaques and tangles in the brain may be present for up to two decades before the symptoms of memory loss are even apparent. Um, so if somebody like a parent develops memory loss in their mid-70s, probably beginning in their mid-50s, this disease was, was progressing. Whoa. It's not unlike other disease models. If you think about heart disease or, you know, where we're sort of the buildup, we, see, we, we check for people's cholesterol in their 20s and 30s and try to treat it to prevent a heart attack 30 years later. That's sort of the thinking now about Alzheimer's, that we've really got to go after this illness earlier and earlier to really make a big impact. Well, are there any screening tools that we can use uh, to, to see or, or imaging studies? 
Um, so the three ways that we sort of assess the, the dementia in terms of the domains of the illness, we look at someone's cognitive functioning with memory testing of various kinds. Some of these are pen and paper tests that we can administer in the office setting. Some are more detailed testing completed by a neuropsychologist who's a trained clinician and expert in dementia. Um, some of them can be digital tests. There's tools that are now being developed by various companies and frankly, academic investigators to try to find, um, really use, use and enhance technology to find these cognitive problems before it's obvious and also minimize the effect of language and other biases that occur, by the way, with some of the, the cognitive testing we have. The other big domain is someone's functional status. So making sure we understand how they're doing in their day-to-day -day care and their, their ability to function in society. And the third is behavior. One of the manifestations of dementia early on is depression or anxiety or, or apathy, lack of motivation, the kinds of things you treat, Joe, and in, in all sorts of age groups, but we see a lot in people who've never had psychiatric illness in their life. Now, all of a sudden, the age of 60 or 70, they're developing depression. One of the things we got to look for and screen for is whether they have the early signs of dementia. There are various tests we can do to rule out other causes of memory loss when people hit their 70s. Basic blood tests, like somebody's blood sugar is off, it can cause memory problems. Someone's on certain medications can affect their memory. Some medicines you all may take over the counter at night to sleep, like Tylenol PM, could impact memory adversely and cause a syndrome that looks like dementia, but it's really a medication side effect. So a thorough evaluation does all of that. And then it's very important to do at least one brain scan. We call it a structural brain scan, like an MRI or a CAT scan. And I would really, um, I really think that uh, you know it's important to at least look for other things that could be causing this problem that's treatable. I'm going to stop there because I could go on and on about this, but I think it's important for people to know that there is a there is a thorough medical evaluation that is critical to understand what's causing the memory loss. Some of it could be Alzheimer's, some of it could be other things. Is there is there a way if you're able to screen this out early to slow the progress? Um, the, we can get probably get into more of this later on too, but um, some of the best interventions that we have to slow the progress are um, lifestyle modifications, exercise, nutrition, and social engagement, as well as keeping our brains cognitively stimulated. All of the things that we know are really important for us sort of doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that, but there's definitive evidence from research that these are excellent for your brain as we age. They may prevent the onset or the delay the onset of dementia, and they may help the symptoms once they're there. There are medications on the market to treat the symptoms, and we can get into the research and where that's going, but the symptomatic therapies right now may help slow the decline for a period of up to six months, perhaps longer. Um, and we can talk more about that in some detail. Somehow six months doesn't always seem encouraging, but it is, right? Well, the way I look at it is the medications that are on the market, like Dinepazil or Aricep, and there are you know, three of those medicines and Memantine, another class, they've been on the market now since the early 90s, so 30 years. They're widely used, and they're often minimized in terms of their effect because some people respond and others don't, and we have no way to predict who will and won't respond, so we kind of treat everyone that we see. Um, they're generally safe. Um, there are some side effects to consider. But what I look for in these medications is to try to improve not the quantity of life, but the quality of life. Yes, absolutely. And even if we're slowing decline, as you were saying, Dr. Joe, by six or 12 months, over time, that makes a difference. 
And um, I've seen people who come off these medicines abruptly actually backpedal pretty quickly. So that if there is function that's still worth preserving and they're tolerating the medications well, they still remain in 2022, the standard of care. Now, I'm sure there's a lot more that we can talk about the current research and the medications. And I, I think our guests are probably very interested in that. But for those of you who may be struggling, who have a loved one with dementia, the book is also about leading you through the course. So Tom, where do we start with this? One of the chapters is making a plan. Where do we start? Well, I, I think one place I'd like to start is, is you know, why we wrote this book. Um, because there, there are there are some other books about dementia out there. There, there, you know, there are memoirs, there are inspirational books, there, uh, there are some what you might call care manuals, books that sort of say here's here's how to take care of these issues for people with with dementia. You know, if you're a family member, but the truth is there that there are millions of family members out there who are taking care of usually a parent. Um, with this disease, and it's incredibly difficult. It's incredibly stressful. Um, it's very, very hard. It's unlike taking care of someone with any other disease. It's unique, um, and there's very little guidance. There, there are no other books like this. There are no other books that are addressed not to the person as a care, the family member as a caregiver, but to the family member themselves. How do they live with it? How do they deal with it? Um, and, and so what we wanted to do is to provide hope and guidance to family members themselves. Here, here's how you can get through this process, you know, as well as you can take care of yourself as well as you can. And, and in so doing, take care of your parent um, more effectively. Um, and I think, you know, one of the problems is that we, we don't, because of the unique nature of this disease, uh, we don't tell family members um, what they need to hear. Um, you know, doctors are usually very good at treatments. Uh, if it's, if it's a disease like cancer, they'll be like, okay, we have treatments. Here they are. Here's our course of action. Here's our treatment plan. Here's what we're going to do. Um, with dementia, because there are far fewer treatments, because it's a long disease, because it's highly variable, um, and because most of the care is not done in a medical facility, but a great deal of it is done at home, uh, we don't tend to tell people, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to do. Um, here are the skills that, that will make your life easier and will make you know, your care better. Um, we just don't do that. And, and so um, what we wanted to do in the book is to, is to provide that kind of guidance to family members. Here's, you know, it's, it's the complete family guide to dementia, right? It's here's, here's what you as a family member you know, need to know. Um, to get through this and to help your parent as best you can, but also to help yourself as best you can. Um, you know, it, it reminds me of the two rules that, that I teach my residents and students is the first is never worry alone. You know, and I think that that really is part of what this book provides is here's, here's a whole group of people that you can worry with. But the second rule that so many people forget that I teach the therapist must survive, you know, and, and people don't think about that. They think it's sort of selfish, you know, like, no, 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 I, I've got to worry about. But I think that's part of, of this book, isn't it? That, you know, the caregiver has to survive. Yes. You, you know, you, you, 
you will take care of your parent better if you take care of yourself better. It's not selfish to take care of yourself and even to take care of yourself first. It's what you need. You need to be able to, to stay afloat if you're then going to help another person. You know, um, it's like yeah. the, you know, the old thing about you put on your own mask first in the airplane and, and then you help someone. Um, and I think a lot of, um, you know, a lot of people make that, that mistake. And I think the other big mistake that, that people make with regard to this disease is that um, they don't approach it as a disease. Um, because it's such an unusual disease it you know takes 20 years to to develop and and it can go on for 20 years um and most of the care is not in is not in is not in a hospital it's not in a doctor's office it's at home um and and it doesn't seem urgent at the very beginning it doesn't seem it seems like it's you know it's gonna be okay we'll make a few adjustments and um but but the truth is that it just gets harder and harder and more difficult and more difficult and more difficult. Um, and if you don't see it as a serious disease in the same way that cancer is or, or, or you know, kidney disease is, um, if you say, well, we'll wing it, we'll, we'll take it as it comes, we'll take each day, we'll, we'll, we'll gradually adapt, then what'll happen is you'll be overwhelmed and, and you won't be able to handle it. And so many families find themselves in that position. So, so one of the things that we try to do is to, is to change the mindset of, of families from taking it as it comes to, to making a plan and to having a structure and to being proactive rather than reactive, to seeing where things are going and, then, and, then, and, and being ready for things rather than always chasing after things. Mark, you want to comment on that real quick? Well, it, <clears throat> it certainly makes a lot of sense, right? If you have spoken to the doctors and the doctors are telling you that this is happening, why wouldn't you get out in front of it? <clears throat> why wouldn't you be as proactive as possible so that you're not forced to be reactive? And while we were off air, we were going to jump into making the plan and the goals you have. So Tom, do you want to start that? And then Dr. Forrester, if you can like chime in, I'm going to just need the two of you to Discuss as if you were about to write the book. <laughs> sure. Um, you know, we talk about forming, you know, in terms of being proactive, not reactive. We talk about having goals. What, what, you know, what do you want to accomplish with this new relationship that you have with your parent? Because it is a new relationship. And many people will say, well, my goals are I want my parent to be happy and I want them to be safe and I want them to be comfortable and I want them to stay at home and as long as they can, and, and so on. That all sounds very nice, right? But what you find is that, um, you know, if, if you, you know, if you want your parent to be safe and happy, well, what happens when they can no longer drive and you have to take the car keys away? Well, they, they might, that might make them safe, but that's not going to make them happy. You know, and if they're, if they're going to fall, you, you know, you, you're going to put them in a place where they're, where they might be more safe, but they might not be happy. Or if you, you know, they may, um, you know, be comfortable, but not be able to be at home. And, and you know, you, what people think they want in, in this kind of aspirational way really doesn't work once you get into the details of the disease. So we talk about goals that actually work um, or that help you make the difficult decisions. Um, we talk about try, trying to focus on what's 
you know, where you have many problems focusing on what's the most important, the most important thing. We talk about um, um, listening to feelings and not to words because you have a disease where words don't work very well. Um, and, and often what, what your family member is saying can trigger you, can, can be very aggravating, can be frustrating, but, but under, hearing and understanding the feelings behind it can help you to respond effectively. Um, can I just say with that, just for, for one sure. moment, Tom, and I ask you, Dr. Barthes, is there a difference, my, my wife was wondering about this with, with her dad, between the expressive language that we're talking about here, that the words don't always come out the same way, versus receptive. Uh, is, is there a possibility that a person with dementia can understand more than we think, but they just can't tell you? So um, absolutely possible. And um, the, the clinical, you know, sort of presentation of dementia varies tremendously from person to person. And it has everything to do with where in the brain the disease is starting to attack at that moment. And also what their prior history is, of course. Um, so as an example, there are two different parts of our language system, the receptive system, as you were saying, and the, and the expressive system. And it's very possible for someone in the early stages of dementia to have a type of dementia where they lose their ability to express themselves, where their words don't make any sense, where they're speaking in fragments of sentences, but they know exactly what's going on and they know exactly what you're telling them, which is why a detailed assessment of this is so important because it then informs the family what's really going on. Someone may score a zero on a cognitive test because it relies so much on language expression. And yet they actually can do quite a bit and they understand quite a bit. And as Tom was saying, the understanding the feelings behind the outward behavior is so important. Um, it's so common for loved ones, adult children, spouses, to misinterpret the, the meaning behind various behaviors based on their previous relationship with the person, based on their own issues and their own stress and their own worry and their own anxiety. Um, and then, of course, based on this just massive breakdown of communication, which pretty much universally happens in dementia, but not always right away. It may take time to really manifest itself. Um, Tom's going to talk more about goals in a minute. I just want to say one other thing. A lot of what you're hearing about the book that we wanted to really put in there was to help families, especially adult children of people with dementia, to really have sort of a it's called a guidebook. It really is. How can we help you navigate this journey of dementia care? Because there is no, there is no one map, but there are some principles that can help guide your specific journey. And for 25 years in this business of caring for people with dementia and supporting their families, I always wanted after communicating what was going on, listening to the concerns of the family, I knew that I was failing these families. There was not this kind of information to help them navigate the journey. So I relied on a lot of other people in the, in the healthcare system, most of whom insurance doesn't pay for, like care managers and social workers. We could talk more about that. But the, I think for me, what really mattered so much about this book was really giving caregivers, family, adult children in particular, the tools to navigate this journey so that they felt both informed and also supported their own you know, their, their efficacy, their self-efficacy and being able to help their parent. Mm -hmm. You know, 
just as an aside, how did the two of you connect Tom around this day? Um, well, I had written I had written an earlier book, and my uh, co-author. And uh, when I started thinking about this book, I, I spoke to my co-author uh, from that book, and I said, "Who would be the best possible person in the world for me to work with?" And <laughs> she said, "Brett Forrester, of course." So, so I, she connected us, and 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 it went from there. Thank That's you, awesome. That's when, terrific. In, in addition to talking about the you know the the sort of be creating goals and being proactive and not just being reactive all the time, which is what sinks a lot of people trying to cope with this. Um, you know, one of the phrases we use is care smarter, not harder. Mm-hmm. Um, because people work and they work and they work and, and it often seems like they're getting nowhere and everything is, everything is, is going downhill. And so, you know, truthfully, there, there are skills to looking after someone with dementia and the problem, and they're not that hard to learn but the problem is that no one teaches them to anyone. No one says, here's, here's how you do this. Here's how you do this. Um, and we go through them in the book. And it's, here's, here are the skills you need to deal with these problems. Now, some of them are just being proactive rather than reactive, which is, you know, dealing with financial things ahead of time um, and, and, and so forth. But a lot of them are skills of communication. How do you communicate effectively with someone who has very impaired memory. Uh, some of them are things like, how do you, you know, you know, at some point the person will no longer be able to drive, but they may not agree with you about that. How do you deal with that? How do you take away the car keys in a way that, that doesn't create a crisis? Um, uh, some of the other um, issues are how do you, you know, how do you keep your parents safe, but, but in a way that doesn't make them feel like you're, you're, you're managing them. Um, how do you deal with problem behaviors? Because people with dementia have what we'll call problem behaviors. They become suspicious. They become paranoid. They become obstreperous. Um, they become withdrawn. They become they do embarrassing things in public. Um, and we talk a lot about what causes that and how to head them off, how to stop them from happening before they happen, as well as how to deal with them when they do. Um, these are skills, and they can be learned. They're not rocket science, uh, but no one is teaching families how to communicate effectively, how to prevent problem behaviors effectively. Um, and, and so they run into all kinds of problems just because they're not, um, they're not using these skills. And so that's an important part of two of what we do in the book is, is, is helping people to care smarter, not harder. Yeah. And, and going back to our original thing about the novel, that has to do with context as well. Could could you, Tom, just explain a little bit about that contextual thing? Because there was an example. I'm going to put your. I'm going to put it in the car versus being more explanatory. Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, 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 you know, if you say um, he'll put it in the car, that to a person with dementia that that means nothing because they don't know who he is and they don't know who who, who it is, what it is, and and. And you know, but if you say your um, your brother Jim is going to put your purse in the car, so you'll have it when we go to the doctor. Now, um, mm. that's that's context. You know that that's all the stuff that was missing off that page in the novel. Now, now you know who's doing what and when and why and all that. Um, 
you know, when someone comes in, you say, oh, uh, it's um, it's your housekeeper, you know, so-and-so who's going to going to um, clean up for you. Or it's uh, it's your sister, uh, uh, Jane, who came to visit you. Um, and just just being able to talk in that way and provide context um, makes uh, makes people with dementia feel like, OK, now I've. I, I get it. I understand what's going on. And it dramatically reduces the amount of agitation and anxiety um, that they experience. And there are many other um, communicative techniques um, along those lines that, that we talk about that that help people with dementia understand what's going on and not become anxious. Because that's a lot of what causes their anxiety and their their problematic behaviors is confusion and fear. I'll just sort of highlight that point that Tom just made. It's often a breakdown in communication between, say, the adult child or the spouse caregiver and the person with dementia that precipitates and provokes anxiety in the individual with dementia. And then they go to a doctor saying, Mrs. Jones is anxious and agitated. And before they know it, they're on medications with side effects that are actually triggered, the problems triggered by an environmental precipitant, which is the nature of the interaction between the caregiver and the person. And when we think about causes of these behavioral symptoms that Tom just so nicely outlined, um, that look like a lot of the problems we see in psychiatric illness, paranoia, depression, anxiety, agitation, et cetera, um, there are many different causes of those symptoms. It could be the changes in the brain. It could be the way in which their adult child talks to them in the morning when they're feeling fearful or anxious. And they just sort of raise the bar of anxiety. Um, it could be a medical problem like a urine infection or a new medication side effect. And um, really understanding the causes of the behavior leads to an appropriate treatment plan as opposed to just throwing like this is from this is this is the stuff I educate clinicians on all the time because they don't they also don't think about these issues either. Most clinicians mm -hmm. who don't do a lot of this work um, we've got to do a, a much better job of educating our primary care workforce and what this illness is, how it manifests itself and how best to treat it. And even understanding these basic concepts is, is I think there's so many nuggets in this book that can become teaching modules for all disciplines in healthcare, honestly. Yeah. So Mark, what do you think about this? Um, you know, where, where, how does this impact you? Well, I think it's really interesting the the strategies around it, right? I mean, it's almost like a how-to book, right? Very similar themes with some of the business books we listen to, right? Work work smarter, not harder, right? Care mm -hmm. smarter, not harder. Be proactive, right? Stephen Covey. Be proactive. You know you're in this. Why wait for it and play, why play defense? Let's get on the offense and and create some strategies and goals. I love it. I can't I'm getting it. There's no doubt about it. Can, you know what, I'll, I'll just say one thing that I think leads to some of the problems that we're trying to find some solutions for is that caregivers bring to the table, you know, a, you know, a whole lifetime of history with their loved one who has mm. dementia. And a lot of the way in which they're making decisions about how they're interacting with them may come from previous experiences. It may be driven by guilt. It may be driven by their own fear about maybe their own future. Um, and I think that that leads to some of the problem reactions that you know caregivers experience, which include their own stress and anxiety, high rates of depression. Frankly, it has a terrible physical toll on caregivers. All of these tools and guides that we're trying to provide 
or in an effort to really help the quality of life of the caregiver. Because without that, the quality of life of their loved one is going to suffer tremendously. And I've often said many times, and I've been quoted by my patients, family members, many times when I've said to family members, if you don't take care of yourself, you're going to be dead before your loved one with dementia. And I say it in so many terms after I've developed a very trusting relationship, by the way, with the person. And I mean it, and I've seen it over and over again, especially with spouse caregivers who are older and have their own medical issues. The stress of this illness is a medical problem unto itself. And it's not, I mean, caregiving for dementia is essentially a risk factor for all sorts of bad outcomes. And this is one attempt to potentially impact that that adverse outcome. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that we talk about is, is cortisol response, the stress response. And people who've listened to the Dr. Joe show know that cortisol interferes with dopamine, which is a neurohormone of pleasure. And cortisol also interferes with oxytocin, a neurohormone of trust. Very hard to feel joy or trust anyone when you're under this much stress. So, so Tom, what, what strategies can we have to, for families to reduce some of their stress around this? Well, you know, I, I just want to first respond to, to what you just said, because um, dementia is unique in, in its ability to cause stress and to be a risk factor. Um, and for a wide variety of reasons compared to other diseases. I mean, for one thing, um, taking care of someone with moderate dementia is, is intense. It requires a tremendous amount of work. You know, comparable to taking care of someone with, with you know, maybe cancer. But it goes on for years and years, mm-hmm. often. Um, it can easily go on for five, 10 years. Um, and there's no other disease where you're taking care of someone with that level of intensity for that period of time. And even if there were, generally, the person you're taking care of would be able to understand what you're doing. They would be able to thank you. They'd be able to cooperate with you. They wouldn't be um, uh, being paranoid about you all the time. And, and so that for those and for so many other reasons, this is an extremely stressful um, problem for, for family members to take care of. Um, and I, I just wanted to make that point. Yeah, without feeling that there's a reciprocal gratitude for it. Yes. And, and, they, and, as, and as Brent pointed out, they feel guilty. Um, and and they, you know, it's, it's, diff, it's hard. It's not like a business contact. You can be proactive in business um, without having to face your own mortality but, but many, or, or a loved one's mortality. But in this case, you do. And, and one, of the, one of the obstacles that many people run into is that they have other family members who are in denial. Mm-hmm. Who, who aren't acknowledging what's happening. Um, if you're a child taking care of a parent, there may be a parent, another parent or a step-parent in the picture, or maybe your siblings, and they may be in denial and not understanding what's going on or not being able to acknowledge what's going on, um, and they may be getting in your way. And so that's another thing we talk about in the book, yeah. you know, is, is strategies for dealing uh, with that sort of problem, because that's actually very common. Yeah, we have a phrase in psychiatry, which you know, denial is not just a river in Egypt, you know, so. Um, so what about anger? What about anger? We're talking about guilt and the anxiety, but uh, I've also seen people get really angry with that person that they're caring for with dementia. I think it's very common, and I think it's often um, a sign of frustration um, and perhaps sometimes a lack of awareness in the moment of what's going on. This happens all the time especially early on in the disease where the person is repeating the same question over and over again, or they're, you know, asking for the same thing over and over again. 
and it becomes extraordinarily frustrating. And again, that anger, if it's expressed by the caregiver, can often trigger some unwanted behaviors in the individual with dementia. You know, another, we're, another reason we I'm, emphasize listening to feelings, not to words, because yeah. often people get angry because of the words. Yeah. Uh, and the way around that is to pay a little less attention to the words and to try to understand the feelings behind them. So the I am approach is part of you know what the Dr. Joshua is based on. And there are four domains, the home domain, we've been talking a lot about that, and the social domain, which is the interaction that a person has with the rest of the world. The biological domain we're absolutely talking about. And then the I see, how I see myself, how I think other people see me. And we're talking about that as well. But because these four domains interact, a small change can have a big effect. No need to change everything. Tom, I'm going to start with you. What small change can you recommend to our listeners, given the talk we're having tonight? Well, I would say be proactive, not reactive. Understand the disease. Plan ahead for what's going to happen and develop the skills. Have a mindset, I'm going to develop the skills to deal with it. And I think that's a kind of small mental change that pays enormous benefits over the, over the course of caring for this disease. Brent Forrester? I would say, I mean, the number one thing I would say, and it's easier said than done, but is do not do this alone. Do not travel this journey by yourself without a friend, without a support group, without a care manager, without someone who really understands the illness, somebody who's lived it before. Um, you need someone to bounce ideas off of. Uh, we can give all the guide, guidance in the world, but in the moment when someone is under stress with a parent who's having a hard day, they need someone to reach out to. That is the power of the interpersonal relationship, whether it's individual or group setting. And, um, and that would be my number one recommendation. Mm. Never worry alone, find someone, which sort of leads to the second truth of the I am, because everyone is interested in what you think or feel about them, and you're part of someone's home or social domain. And you know that it feels differently when you treat it with respect or disrespect, it has an effect on your biology. This means you control no one, you influence everyone, and you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Tom Harrison, what kind of influence do you want to be? Well, obviously, I want to influence uh, people for the good to help them to take care of family members with this disease. But I also want to say that, you know, this is a great point, because the great frustration of caring for someone with dementia is that you can't control them. You, you know, normally you can, infl- you, you can kind of direct someone by telling them you need to do this or reasoning with them. And you can't do that with a person with dementia. You can't reason with them in the way you normally could but you can influence them. And we talk a lot about ways to influence people to make their reactions uh, better and healthier. And and some of that has to do with structuring the environment. Um, It's not enormously difficult or expensive, but if there are little things you can do that structure the person's environment and make them much less likely to become agitated. And also structuring the day, how you set up time during the day, what you do when, it's not, complicated or expensive or difficult but if you have that skill to to structure time and to structure space um you know that influence has an enormous effect on on making life better dr brent forrester you control no one you influence everyone you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be what kind of influence do you want to be 
I think the influence is really around bringing the knowledge about what this disease is, the fact that it's sort of more than sort of, it's becoming an epidemic in our, in our country. It affects millions of Americans. It's incredibly costly. We need to all understand what dementia is, how it presents, get people treated early, get people recognized early to have support for caregivers along the journey. Um, I would like to influence policy in the United States to provide mechanisms to support families in this journey. We do a lot for various segments of our society who are in need. And I worry and fear that the Alzheimer's population, which is growing and the caregivers in some ways are very silent. There are no survivors of this disease, mm. but there are a lot of strong voices that can be heard. And if I can influence more of them to take, you know, step up and speak uh, to people who have decision-making authority in this country about providing the resources needed for this journey, I will continue to do that. Oaks, get the book, The Complete Family Guide to Dementia. Someone you know picked up the phone.